If you have your Bibles, uh, open them up to uh, John's Gospel, chapter 12. I'm going to read just a couple verses from there. These are Jesus' words. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my Father also will be. My Father will honor those, the one who serves me. Well, we're in a series called Wake Up, and we are looking at research uh, from a Barna survey that revealed 10 transformational stops along the Christian journey towards spiritual maturity. And what the material shows, what the survey shows, is that a lot of Christians get stuck <laughs> halfway through the process. We come to faith in, in Christ, we, we find a faith community, we receive baptism, we get involved in various uh, church activities, and that's about as far as we get. But there is so much more. And so we want to help you discover how to move into the second half of the gospel, what the Bible calls sanctification. Now last week we looked at stop number six, a holy discontent. Christians at this stop realize that they have stopped growing and they want more. They're no longer satisfied with where they are. Today we're looking at stop number seven and it's called brokenness. Now, this scripture from John's Gospel is commonly read as a part of the, the graveside service at a burial. And it reminds those gathered around the grave that death produces seeds of life that bear fruit for eternity. But when Jesus says this, he's speaking of his own death, his coming death, and how it's going to set in motion a whole new order of things that will produce many seeds for a rich harvest. And so Jesus' death is going to be a victory because, paradoxically, it leads to life for you and me. Now, this is true spiritually as well. In verse 25, he reminds us that in losing our lives in service to Christ, that we'll find eternal life. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to lose your life? Well, it begins with our brokenness. And it often begins when, when life hits a crisis. Something happens that disrupts your life. It might be the, the death of a loved one. It might be the change of, of finances. It might be a, a moral breakdown. It might be the breakdown of, of a relationship. And sometimes we're tempted to see this as, as punishment from God, but it's not. God may use uh, these things in our life for a redemptive purpose, but it's not divine retribution. It's always for our good. Now, our normal reaction when we face a crisis in life is, is to strive for a return to normalcy. And sometimes we're able to do that. But for most of us, you can't go back to the way that things used to be. Life is too disrupted, and, and, and you know that, that, that something needs to change, that you need to change. And, and you discover that no matter how hard you try, you are helpless to resolve the issue. And maybe you've been in a situation like that. No matter how hard you try to change, you just can't. 
Uh, my mother used to say that raising six children did this for her. <laughs> Things went pretty uh, smoothly the first 15 years or so of parenthood. And she thought that she finally had uh, being a parent mastered and couldn't understand why other parents seemed to struggle so with their kids. And then things got difficult, and nothing she did seemed to make any difference as she began to realize that she was powerless to resolve the issue. We see this in, in Peter's life. When Jesus tells the 12 that he'll be put to death, when they get to Jerusalem, Peter takes him aside and he rebukes him. He says, never, Lord, never, this will not happen to you. And do you remember how Jesus replied? Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Mainly himself. Peter cared only about himself. And so while Jesus was being condemned before the Sanhedrin, Peter was in the courtyard denying that he even knew Jesus. Peter denied the Lord because he would not, listen, he would not deny himself. Peter denied the Lord because he would not deny himself. And just then a rooster crowed, and the gospel says that Peter went outside and he wept bitterly. Peter was a broken man. And the Christian faith has a term for this. It's called the dark night of the soul. And it's a spiritual crisis in which a person feels a sense of loneliness, a sense of abandonment, a, a helplessness to change. And the spiritual life becomes difficult and unrewarding, and our prayers seem to hit the ceiling and, and bounce back unanswered. There's oftentimes a feeling of anger towards God as well. And after Mother Teresa passed away, it was revealed in her journals uh, that she struggled with the dark night. And she wrote this, she said, I, I am told that God lives in me, and yet the reality of, of darkness and, and coldness and an emptiness is so great that nothing touches my soul. And, and some people read these words and, and they said, see how weak her faith really was? But those who knew better, those who understand that the dark night almost always results in a stronger faith, and almost everyone who is on this spiritual journey, will go through it and come out on the other side intact. King David went through it as well. We see it in Psalm 22. And we don't know the circumstances. Some have speculated that it was some kind of sickness. Perhaps some kind of major crisis had come into David's life and, and it left him reeling. His life with God had been characterized by a closeness and, a, and an intimacy that had been deeply treasured, but now he feels abandoned, totally. He says, I cry by day, but you do not answer. I cry at night, but I find no rest. He looked around for God, but God was nowhere to be found. You see, David had had a, a deep relationship with God all of his life. He says, since my mother bore me, you have been my God. David doesn't remember a time in his life when, when God was not there. And the reason for that is simple. It's how he was brought up. It was a part of his heritage. 
His family had a long history with God. It goes back generations. And, and he remembers that they trusted in God and, and they were delivered from their problems. Why did God help them and not him? It didn't seem right. It didn't seem fair. So whatever has happened to David to make him feel deserted by God has now become a, a public spectacle. He writes in verse 6 and 7, he says, I am scorned by others. I am despised by the people. All who see me mock at me. And David should have been glad he didn't uh, experience this in the age of social media. <laughs> Instead of just being shamed by your neighbors or your community, today you can be shamed by the whole world. And he's exhausted, and he's sick, and he's discouraged. He's surrounded by enemies, and he's at the brink of death. And he realizes that he is helpless to change his situation. David is a broken man. And this is how God uses our brokenness. We realize that the world and what it offers can no longer truly satisfy us. Everything that we thought that would make for a successful life, wealth and power and influence and, and popularity fails. Even things like, like friendships and, and finding the perfect soulmate, the blessings of children does not really satisfy. And, and God uses our brokenness to wean us away from our sin, to, to wean us away from ourself and, and to wean us away from the world, from our society. And he begins to move us from self-dependence to God dependence. Now this stop on our way to spiritual maturity, this brokenness can be a terrible and frightening place. It can also be a place of, of learning and growth. Because there are things that you can learn here that can be learned nowhere, nowhere else and we are plunged into this awareness of danger and death, but the same moment we are plunged, if we uh, uh, let ourselves be, into a very awareness of the mystery of God. It is both terrifying and incredibly liberating. You see, where I have grown spiritually is in those times of brokenness. Times when I feel like everything has been stripped away from me. For it is here where I have come face to face with God and where he confronts me. It's in my brokenness where I am tested, where I take the test and I either pass or I fail. Either I become more or I become less. I either grow in faith or I regress. And there's something that happens in our brokenness where all the toys of, of civilization are stripped away and we're confronted with who we are and what we have become. And it's in that brokenness that we learn how to have a radical trust in God. You see, we need to realize that trusting in God's provision, that it comes in steps. That trusting in God completely is frightening. But God challenges us to take those little steps at a time. You see, trusting uh, in God is learning to believe in small steps, to grow little by little in our trusting until we get to the place where we believe that God wants us to be. And the great thing is that God is in charge of it all. 
Now, in the research that Barna conducted, he also made another disturbing discovery that of these 15,000 people interviewed, only 10% have what he called a biblical worldview. Few believed in the authority of Scripture or in the existence of absolute moral truth or that salvation is by grace alone. Now, why is this? Well, Barna speculated that too often Christians are being formed not by Scripture, not, not by the faith community, but by culture. That rather than changing society for the better, Christians are actually being changed for the worse. Christians are changed by society. And here's why it matters so much. Uh, some years ago, uh, GQ magazine did a couple of, of interviews that presented very different worldviews. And, and the first interview was, was with the actor, Matthew McConaughey. And he said this. He said, I'm a fan of the word selfish. Self-ish. And when I say I've gotten a lot more selfish, I mean I am less concerned with what people think of me. Selfishness has gotten a bad rap. He said, you should do for you. Now, just a, a few pages in the same magazine was an award winner fiction writer named George Sanders, the man they called the Life Coach of the Year. And here's what Sanders said in his interview. He said, the big kahuna of all moral questions, as far as I am concerned, is ego. How do you correct the fundamental misperception that we are all born with, namely the idea that I am central? All of the nasty stuff in this life comes out of that misunderstanding. You see, until we are willing to completely abandon sin and self and the approval of culture, we are going to struggle to move to the next stop. And brokenness helps us to make that move. We depend less on ourselves and more on God. We understand that God has to be the center of our life before we can attain the life that we want. And it begins when we give control back to God. You see, as long as you and I retain control, we will never know the strength and the freedom that comes from our utter dependence upon God. Does this make sense? The thing is, is that it requires a behavioral shift as well. Uh, let's go back to our scripture. Jesus says, whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. For my Father will honor the one who serves me. So how do we do that? How do we serve Christ? Well, we serve him by following him, to be the kind of servant that he was. It's a call to give up our vested interest in, in the world and to follow Jesus in the way of servanthood. And so Jesus in the scripture unapologetically and, and with no ambiguity whatsoever calls each and every one of his followers to acts of service. He says to us, he says, I want you to be different. I want you to be different from the rest of the world, to do things that normal pride-filled people are always unwilling to do. In other words, Jesus is calling us to, to live beyond ourselves, to leave behind our, our petty concerns of social status and, and titles and, and positions, my wants and, and my desires. 
He's calling us to make daily acts of kindness and, and service a lifestyle, to do things like opening doors or sharing the remote control at home or, or helping around the house or the office or the classroom in ways that are uncharacteristic and unexpected by the rest of the world. In essence, to go the second mile. The other day I was waiting in line at a local food establishment. I've never quite figured out how the line in this particular place is supposed to work, but I've been waiting some time when this little old lady came up and she looked me right in the eye and she said, now, sir, I'm not jumping in line. I just need to lean against the counter for a moment. Now, who was I to, de uh, to, to, to deny this senior citizen a little support? And so I graciously said, well, of course. And then the clerk came up and the woman placed her order. I was stunned. She had tricked me. Little old ladies aren't what they used to be. <laughs> Fine, I thought to myself. I'll go to the other cash register. And just as I moved over to that place, somebody else jumped in line in front of me and placed their order. I was livid. I was so hot, I just turned around and I walked out the door. Man, I hate it when I lose my cool. What's the big deal? Why not take the serving role and offer these people my place in line? Why not let the car in, in ahead of you? Why not have some, some fun and pay for the lunch at McDonald's with the guy behind you in the drive-thru? Why not? Notice Jesus says, my father will honor the one who serves me. Did you hear that? Here is Jesus making a blanket across the board, no exception promise that those who practice this lifestyle of serving people in practical ways, those who live beyond themselves will be the recipients of God's blessing and God's favor. Something supernatural will be released into your life. You believe that? Do you believe it enough that you would reorder the priorities in your life, that you would change your value system, your core beliefs, in order to live the kind of life that Jesus models for us? I mean, it's a decision that all of us are going to face many times in our life. We can keep looking for those shortcuts to fast cash and, and more money and more power and more applause and more fame, whatever it is for you that makes you feel fulfilled. Or we can look for ways to make a difference in the lives of others. The Bible considers Solomon one of the greatest kings of Israel ever. His wisdom was legendary. But in the book of Ecclesiastes, we have recorded a period of his life when he did a swan dive into the deep end of the self-gratification pool. <laughs> Listen to what he writes. So I decided to build houses for myself. One will not do. I want more than one house. And after that, I built vineyards. And then I planted gardens and parks and trees. And then I bought slaves and livestock to impress my friends. And then I decided to amass silver and gold for myself. Now, that sounds like a lot, but he's not done yet. He says, I acquired men and women singers. So he had his own choir. He had his own orchestra. And then he says, I got... Delight to the flesh and many concubines. I don't even know how to comment on that. <laughs> he concluded this hedonistic bind binge by saying, I decided 
to deny myself nothing that my eyes desired. Denied himself nothing. I mean, talk about hitting the jackpot. <laughs> Is that the American dream? To have the opportunity and the resources to be able to deny yourself nothing that your eyes desire? Are these our heroes? People who are able to acquire all of their material desires, are these the people that we envy? Now listen to the very next verse. And when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. It was like chasing the wind. Nothing was really gained under the sun. The King James Version puts it this way, vanity, vanity. The whole thing was vanity. And so the smartest guy of his time shoots for soul satisfaction and a sense of purpose by the means of a massive self-gratification pursuit. And guess what? It's a total bust. Does that surprise you? Because it seems like almost every week in the media, a story of someone who relentlessly spends their life pursuing fame and fortune and self-gratification, and then we watch as their lives begin to unravel and self-destruct, and you think that we would have it figured out by now. You think that at some point in human history that there would be a chorus of, of a million voices rising up and crying out, don't do that. Living only for yourself doesn't work. And if you give in to this self-gratification monster, uh, he will eat you alive and he will spit you out because God didn't wire us that way. And you'll get to the end of your life and you'll regret how you lived your one and only life. You will. So what's the alternative? It's following Jesus. It's following the teaching, the example of Jesus in a very focused and a very dedicated and impractical way. It's acting on the promise that if you serve others, your life will be greatly blessed, that God will fill your fulfillment bucket to overflowing. And you're going to have to make up your mind what kind of life you're going to live. And once you decide, you're going to have to commit. You see, each of us has a, a choice to make. And it's fundamentally one of the most important choices that you will ever make as a Christ follower. It's either following the life of Jesus or it's following the life of self-gratification. But you cannot move to the next stop in your spiritual maturity until you make this decision. And it begins with repentance. It really does. After Peter had denied the Lord three times, the Bible said what? That he went out and wept bitterly. That sounds awful, but that was a turning point in his life. And it's the same with us. That is what will take us to the next stop, saying no to security and power and pleasure, weeping bitterly for the way that things are, confessing our temper, our pride, our jealousy, our envy, our, our sharp words, our unkind judgments, and our unforgiving thoughts. To get down on our knees and to admit to God that we are not the people that we want to be. That we are helpless to change. That we are held captive by sin and by self and by society. And that we have put ourselves on the throne of our lives. 
And then to ask for the infilling of the Holy Spirit to take us to that next stop in our journey towards holiness and love. It's a decision that we need to make. And maybe today you're ready to make that. And if you are, I want you to pray with me. Let's bow our heads. God, we're so grateful for the example of Jesus Christ who lived the kind of life that the multitudes marveled at because of its simplicity, its focus, and its kindness. God, we live in a crazy and mixed-up world that keeps taking us down the wrong road. And so today, this moment, we want to turn over the control of our lives to you. We want to go deeper with you. We pray that you would help us to live beyond ourselves, to redirect our lives so that we don't get to the end of our days and say, vanity, vanity, it was all a chasing of the wind. So lead us down the road that Jesus went to lose our lives in service to others and to you, to live a life of love and holiness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.